right? Everyone loves their dog, right? Everyone loves their cat, or at least I hope you do. Please treat them with love and respect as you would anything else in your life, if not more so because they're sentient beings and because they're completely blameless and innocent and absolutely adorable. So we're not going to discuss that at all. We are going to talk about animals. We're going to talk about pets today um, because pets are, of course, the easy way to go after people's emotions, always the easy way to be able to get the attention of others. I adopted my dog. I adopted him when I was in sixth grade. It was shortly before spring break. My sister had made a recommendation to us that we go to the pound just to get a look at the dogs and see what kind of dogs were there. My mom had always had in mind a particular kind of dog. She either wanted a Westie, which is a very expensive dog, um, and I'm just gonna... Which is a Westie, which is something like what you see on screen. Or she wanted a Shipu. And the reason why she wanted a Shipu is not only because of their intelligence, but because of their sort of their nature. That's the kind of dog that she wanted. So we went down to the pound. Oh, sh the pound no longer exists. So the pound at this time, it was over in Chesapeake. In Chesapeake, there are a few pounds. The one that we went to that was nearest us was basically right near the Portsmouth and Chesapeake line out near the rail crossing. It's right out near where we call Cavalier Manor. And it's an old, it's called Cavalier Manor Industrial Park or Cavalier Industrial Park. And right over there, there's a UPS and there's a UPS drop box and there's all sorts of trucking facilities and some industrial companies and whatnot. But at the end of it, there, it, there was a pound and it was quite old. Chesapeake has recently built a new one, and that one is out on Military Highway. When we went inside the pound, you could tell that it was sort of dilapidated, but it wasn't broken down, it wasn't messy, the door still looked fine, everything looked secure. Um, it was a little hot in there, but it wasn't, it wasn't like the dogs were gonna like overheat, or they were like, you know, as far as we can tell, they weren't uncomfortable. So we looked around, and we looked around, and so it's basically like a U-shaped where you can go, sort of go in through the back, go around, and come out the other side. So you'd be able to go in one way, right where the door, where the desk is. And so the desk is basically in a wall, kind of like Monsters, Inc. And then you look this way, and then there's a room where you can sit with the dog. And then there's the actual door where you go into where the dogs are all kept. We head inside, and we look around for a little while. And we looked around, and we saw a dog that was a Siberian Husky. Now, granted, this was a few weeks before spring break in sixth grade, for me, sixth grade. So I was about to turn 12. We looked at Siberian Husky, my mom was like, okay, well, I get it. On our way out, well, I look up to my right, because I'm basically standing with that door that I was telling you about to the pound, to my back. Mom and my sister are basically standing by the Siberian Husky cage, because he's down, he's got a big one. And we see my dog, Mocha, with his face all matted up. His face, he's, he has this huge face of just fur, and they completely shaved down his entire body. He was, he was suspected to be a puppy mill puppy because Shipus are worth anywhere, I mean, back then they were worth about $2,000. I imagine they'd be worth something similar, if not more today. And we looked up, I looked up to the right, and I see Mocha. 
And so he is trembling. He's trembling with his little paws. And I'll have to get my mom to get the picture of me and the dog. And y'all have to promise to joke me. <laughs> I was I, I was I, I was a fat kid, but I absolutely loved this little dog. And so we look up and I see him. Mocha's literally sitting there just trembling. His whole face is just trembling. <laughs> we look up and we're like, yeah, let's see that dog. Let's see that one. And so we took the dog out and we went outside and we went inside the room where you get to go, you know, touch the dog and whatnot. And there they told us a bit about him. They suspected him to be a puppy mill dog. They found him running alongside Military Highway, which was very dangerous for him. He had a few broken ribs. He had mange, mange on his face. He also had a very bad ear infection that could have cost him his hearing. He had only been there for a few days. The way that the rules work for the pound in Chesapeake is basically you can go and see him. However, the owners have seven days to claim him. They have to come looking. And so we waited a few days. We waited a few days and no one came looking for him. And we checked afterwards. No one ever came looking for him. No one really knows when he was born. They estimated by the growth rate of his teeth sort of uh, the age of the rest of his body he was about three years old we played with him out in the yard and we said hi to him and then and like during spring break we went to go get him me and mocha have a very special attachment because i have a, a very soft spot for cripples bastards and broken things me and mocha are very alike and um we as a collective group of people known as a family were always very sweet to that dog. He had a bad ear infection. So we got him Banfield Pet Insurance, which at the time was like 25 or $35. Basically, we went to, when we took him to Banfield, they gave him a medication for his ear. And they also gave him a wash medication for the mange on his body. And because they literally would not even take gloves with clippers. So what we did was, is we took him there and we got him looked up, we got him looked over and we, we got him his ear medication so that he could hear. We got him mange medication. We made sure his heart medication was correct. We made sure he was in good health and we made sure to get him wrapped up um, because that little bruise, because that little uh, broken rib of his. We took him home. We were still living at my old, old house and that house we had basically doubled in size. And by we, I mean my I mean, my mother. But anyway, so what we so what we did is that we we put the dog in sort of an enclosed space. So between the dining room, the theater room and the computer room, there was basically a lot of open space. It was maybe like 12 or 15 feet by about eight or 10 feet. It was probably about it was probably about eight feet. So it was about 12 or 15 feet by about eight feet. And it was pretty big. And so we kind of tried to like play with him and be with him and he was just not having it. He wasn't very comfortable. We could tell that he was not um, adjusted to what was happening. And we played with him there and we left him there. We tried go leaving him. We tried going upstairs and whatnot and he wouldn't let us leave. He whined and he cried and he was so distraught that we could not leave him down there. I mean, we had just taken him from a situation where he was very nervous and, you know, we had just bought the dog. Um, I believe we paid $50 for him. It might've been a bit, it might've been $50 for the adoption and a bit more for maybe some shots or some last minute stuff. Also registration with the city, you have to pay taxes and all the rest of that stuff. And we're gonna get to that. I, I let him out. 
I took the, the fence away and he was able to get out. And so we allowed him to sleep upstairs. At the time, he was sleeping with my cousin and my sister were sharing a room. We left him there for a little, for a night. He wouldn't have it. <laughs> he would not sleep. And so he kind of put his paws up on the gate, which is just a little baby gate, to try to get out of the room. Because we didn't want, because when you have a dog, it's actually best not to expose them to the entire house at one time. It's best just to sort of section it out. And so the night that we actually got him home, my mom began to take this bottle to his ear because he wouldn't let any of us do it. And so he only let her do it where he was able to get this bottle inside of his ear in order so that she could cure this ear infection. Because as I said, he was beginning to lose hearing. They were very afraid he was going to start losing hearing. And he was only three years old at the time. And there's no reason the dog should have lost outside of the fact that people could not pay for it. And so we let the dog out and he eventually started sleeping in my mom and dad's room. She's the one he bonded with. He was supposed to be me and my sister's dog to take care of. We walked him on a regular basis. We fed him on a regular basis. We tried to play with him. But Mocha was only ever interested in my mom because she is the one who gave him back his hearing. We have kept the dog for an extended period of time. He has been ours ever since. He is 15 years old this year. He's going to be 16 years old next year. And it's about, it's going to break my heart when he leaves me. But, um, but, but he's, but he's been an excellent boy. Um, we never really had any potty training issues with the dog. He was always very precious. Sometimes we would leave him for a few hours to go to like out to out places. He would sometimes urinate, sometimes defecate. Never, never really had any issues. He was very much so potty trained. Um, it was only when we left for extended periods of time. <laughs> so what I did is I took the dog and we, and we played with him and we had a good time and all the rest of that stuff. So the dog, he, he, he was very happy and he's, he's playful, but most of the time he likes to be by himself. He is a house dog. Uh, Shifus are very uh, stubborn into themselves. And so what I did was, is, or what we did was, is we kept him and he, he never really had any problems. He only chewed through, I think, one set of wires and they weren't plugged in. It was like 80 wires and that was probably because he was nervous and he never did it again. Late last year... Mocha began to have some growth in his eyes, and I wasn't quite sure what it was. There was this mucus that was beginning to come out of his eyes, and I was not sure why that was happening. And it just sort of stayed throughout the summer, and it, just, and it was sort of accumulating, and I was becoming more and more concerned about it. Oh, excuse me, this is summer of 2019, not last year. Summer of 2019, I see the dog. I had just come into a little bit of money, and so the dog, I decided to go ahead and take him to Banfield in order so they could get a look over his eyes, so we could get a look at what kind of medication his eyes needed. With Banfield Health Insurance, he was able to get, right, along with paying for the actual medication, I think it was like 150 160 maybe, it was like maybe $150, $160, but it was about $150, $160 in order to get the dog's eyes taken care of. It turned out he had a regular condition, just like any other sheep who has, where they have dried out eyes. So their eyes tend to dry out much easier. And so what happens is, is that there is essentially a, um, uh, a callousing of the eye, if you will. There's sort of like a scabbing of the eye. And so he slowly but surely was losing his ability to see 
And so I was not going to have that. I was not going to tolerate it, especially since at the time I had some money and I was like, absolutely not. I'm not going to let the dog go blind. So I bought the medication and I began applying it to his eyes. And since I had been away for college for so many years, basically since 2016, I was able to bond with the dog again. So I, um, I decided that at the time, excuse me, I was going to get his medication and I got his medication. And so I started applying it to his eyes. It was a simple fix. The thing is he needed a special compound and Dr. Starr was able to get him that special compound uh, from a clinic, a pharmacy out in New Jersey. It was about $150, $160 in order to get the dog's medication. And the actual appointment itself was free due to the fact that we had Banfield Pet Insurance. Banfield is a for-profit, private, veterinary, so-called care institution. I applied that to his eyes and I made sure that he could see. Um, and I was able to save his sight. And it wasn't that anyone really, it wasn't that anyone didn't notice or or the or, or no one had the money to do it it was more of it was just something that they thought was normal or thought that it was going to that that it was okay because over the years every dog well not every dog some dogs do have tear marks in their eyes and so-called tear marks it, most of the time it's a little bit of secretion from their eyes that sort of hardens up in lumps his was turning a bit green and all the rest of it and so as i said the medication not only cleared the mucus from his eyes, but also clear the scabbing from Mocha's eyes. Essentially, what were platelets that were beginning to sort of scab over the surface of the eye to the point where he couldn't see or making it very hard to see. And if you all don't know, most dogs are already legally blind. They're, ve they're not very good at seeing. Much better sniffing around. Mocha has always been a very special dog to me. He is, he can sometimes be a smelly little thing, uh, but he is absolutely precious. I love him very much. I love him very much. And really, no matter what happens to the dog, I do know that, um, that we, that, that he was the one good thing that did come out, um, of my family. He was the one pure thing that did come out, um, of my family. He was, um, he's very cared for. He is very loved. He is in good health and he is cared for on a daily basis. He is precious. The reason why I bring this story up is because I know that my story is limited, very limited. Not many people have the same opportunity that I do. I have another I have another story to tell you about a dog in my life though. When I was really, really young, maybe second or third grade, me and my family went down to North Carolina. I have extensive family in North Carolina and in Virginia, really all throughout Virginia and North Carolina, they are the descendants of slaves. My mother's side of the family are direct descendants of slaves. So I went down to I went down to North Carolina. I was real young, and across the street was where my aunt's house used to be, until she moved, and so uh, she essentially gave it up to the city and took an amount from it, because it's a historical landmark. All of that area down where my grandparents live, and a lot of it is is historical land for all kinds of good reasons. But we won't go into that. That that that's a tale for another time. It's the same reason in Chesapeake there's an extended area that cannot be redeveloped because it was a part of the Quakers Underground Railroad. And one day we can talk about that too. However, so my dog Hunter, what we named him was a puppy when we got him, and we only kept him for about a year or so. My dad was is a very stupid man, um, and he is um very hard headed and somewhat cruel. So the dog was sort of bigger, and the dog was never allowed to sort of be with us 
Um, the dog was always kept downstairs um, within either the garage, which had plenty of room. He had he was always fed, always kept well. He was never beaten or anything like that. But he was kept as sort of an ancillary dog, not as sort of a member of the house. And so the dog went outside. Um, eventually, he was put outside and sort of chained to a tree. The dog, over time, became less and less acclimated to humans and more and more restless. And so my parents, instead of deciding to acclimate the dog to us, and instead of trying to retrain him, decided that they instead were going to give him over to the city. I was in second or third grade at the time, and I remember I was actually just getting off the bus. They had tried to do it before I had gotten there. And second or third grade me saw the dog and being taken and, and I and I sort of understood what was happening and I began crying. I was very, very sad. I was very, very sad the fact that the dog was going to go. But I knew at the time that we couldn't keep him because they didn't want to put in the work in order to keep him. I am very privileged in the fact that not many people know the first story, but so many people know the reality of that second story of not being able to take care of a dog, not being able to afford to take care of a dog, for a dog who could have simply, simple either procedures or treatments or preventative measures before they became ill to go about fixing them. Animals have a very special place inside my heart. As I said, I have a, I have a very soft spot for cripples, bastards, and broken things. This past year during coronavirus, many people decided that they wanted to have dogs. People absolutely loved dogs. I mean, every, who doesn't love a dog, right? Dogs are the absolute best. Dogs give you the ability to have a friend. They allow you to like have someone to love. They allow you to have someone who you care about, right? Uh, a, an emotional support animal that looks up to you and that and that likes your touch and wants to touch you can play even you, you two can almost communicate back and forth about their wants your needs all the rest of that stuff and that is was incredibly important to people while the pandemic was going on while people were receiving $600 a week plus ups on unemployment people were at home with dogs loving animals and being free of the fetters of capitalism the Trump administration saw this and did their best to reduce the amount of unemployment from $600 to $400 to $300 to now it's over. And since people have been forced to go back to work and go back to normal life, but I would imagine that for a, a vast majority of them, it is not this. It's because they can no longer afford to keep the dog that they adopted when they had a $600 plus up weekly unemployment insurance. Providing a universal basic income is not simply about allowing people to actually take the same profits that rich people do. Rich people get an enormous amount of profit. Capital gets an enormous amount of profit. That's what I was talking about the other day. And there is an alternative. It's what I talked about in Hogwatch with Hasanabi, which will be up Wednesday under the title Marjorie Green Isn't Crazy. And it is about allowing people to be free of capitalism, allowing people of being free of the ability of the need to go out in the world and work to survive. And it is incredibly unfortunate that many of those dogs that have been adopted, unfortunately, were returned. 
people did not have the financial backing to take care of their pets. And animals are not only blameless, but are really probably the biggest joy of life. Glenn Greenwald and I can agree on that. <laughs> we can agree on that, Glenn Greenwald. We can agree on that, Glenn Greenwald. That animals are one of, especially dogs, are probably one of the best things about life. When it comes to surrendering animals, euthanasia is often the thing that happens. Usually, especially in a lot of these shelters around the country, these so-called cutbacks or reductions or the barriers that are put in between people and services, the cutting back of, of the social rights, of the social society, caused a massive contraction in the amount of money that goes towards things like pounds. And you see an incredible rise in the amount of animals who are put down because they cannot be adopted. A large part of this problem is due to the private puppy mill industry. Largely, puppy mills are not illegal. Largely, so-called breeders are not regulated. They simply need to pass a simple private exam and get licensed, and they're done. And that's it. There are no state quotas. There are no societal considerations taken in when it comes to pets in a capitalist system, particularly dogs in this case, outside of profit which is a large part of the reason as to why we have such issues with invasive species in this country. As a professor at TCC, Tidewater Community College used to tell me all the time, the reason why so many of the Douglas firs are dying are because of invasive species of certain animals that are coming from other parts of the world because rich people are importing them and they're getting out because they're tiny and of course nature always gets out. So you have on the one hand private puppy mills, private dog raisers, private dog breeders and traders that are completely unregulated by the state. There are no quotas, and there's also no consideration for how you're going to take care of those animals as they grow older. My view is this. Dogs evolved alongside us. They are our original technological innovation. You see the robot dogs that, are, that I joke about with the Metal Gear Solid memes. However, dogs did evolve and become more tame over time, the species that they evolved from, due to us having meat around, cooked meat, and also having use for them in terms of hunting, and also companionship, guarding members of the family, guarding the food stocks, that other emotional support, I mean, you name it. It's the reason why when you say something to a Siberian husky, it turns its head. It's the reason why it almost sounds like they're talking, because they are extremely sophisticated emotionally and intellectually sophisticated animals these dogs are our responsibility we started this dogs of all sizes breeds shapes colors are our responsibility we are in charge of these animals they are our collective responsibility and it is unacceptable to me that the idea that someone would be too poor to take care of their pets because it does not matter how much money that you have whether or not you should sit and watch your animal die i found it unacceptable and i find it unacceptable today it is a problem that has always existed i'm going to put it out there it's not something that's brand new 
But this is about capitalism. This is about allowing for-profit institutions to breed animals in order so that they can sell them with no regard as to what happens to these dogs after they are born. And so these precious little things, whether they be small and tiny like him or big and bulky like a pit bull, they are precious. They are blameless. They are our responsibility. As a species, they are our responsibility. They are our oldest friends. And in the United States, we spend, according to the best data that we have, according to the best data that we have, according to the American Veterinary Medical Association, as of last year, annual spending on pets neared $100 billion for the first time. 2019 spending was $95.7 billion, according to a February 27th announcement from the American Pet Products Association. This is out of the American Veterinary Medical Association. This is Javma News. Veterinary care and product sales came in at $29.3 billion, a substantial jump from previously reported spending figures in addition to routine veterinary care. The total now includes surgical procedures and sales of pharmaceuticals and other products through veterinary clinics. Supplies. Live animals and over-the-counter medicines sold at retail accounted for $19.2 billion in 2019. In terms of services that contributed $10.3 billion to sales or is attributed to sales, the category comprises, according to Javma, boarding, grooming, insurance, training, pet sitting, and walking, and all services outside of veterinary care. And I just want to repeat this line to you. Veterinary care and product sales came in at $29.3 billion. The total now includes surgical procedures and sale of pharmaceuticals and other products through veterinary clinics. $30 billion. $30 billion. $30 billion. There should be no living being. There should be no person. There should be no pet that we should watch die because they don't have enough numbers on a screen or in a computer or enough green paper in their pocket in order to exchange for their pet's life or their life. The case for Medicare for All is sound. I think we can do better. I think we should do better. I think we should nationalize the healthcare industry in the United States, not Medicare for All, and we'll discuss that. I am calling for the nationalization of the pet care industry in the United States. Not the nationalization of, not simply a Medicare for all kind of system for pet care. Because I think it's gonna be yet another way that corporations bilk the US federal government. That that pet should be cared for from the time that you adopt it until the time that it goes to its grave. Preventative measures, medicines, veterinarians, x-rays, cat scans, surgeries, should all be free at the point of use. There is no excuse as to why we do not have a nationalized system for pets. It is in the best interest of all of us, including our pets, to have a national system whereby we control the population of animals and not leave it up to the local county and the good old boys with the pole 
and cages in the back of a F-150 or Ford Ranger or a Silverado to take care of our animals for a week or two before they're euthanized. There should be a national system whereby we take care of our animals. Veterinarians should be employees of the state. And this should not be a state program. This should be a federal program. It is the only way that it's going to work. If it needs to be a part of the National Wildlife and Rescue Service, if it needs to be a part of that, if it needs to be a part of the United States National Park System, then we'll do that. But there must be a system. There must be a way to control the population of animals, to determine, so we can, as a society, determine what kind of animals that we breed, not just ones that make profit or short-term gain, to breed animals in a way that is sustainable, that is ethically responsible, no more breeding, private breeding of animals that allows them to have congenital disorders, no more abandonment of animals on the side of the road because people cannot afford to take care of their pets. The shelters that you see around within the different cities should all be federally managed through the Wildlife Service or through the National Park System, whatever way you want to do it. But there must be a bettering of the condition of these animals. How we treat them says everything about us. Mocha saved my life. He did. Mocha saved my life. I think we saved each other. And he has been my best friend for years. There should never be a moment where we watch our animals die. There was an article out, out last year that was making the rounds that's always stuck in my mind. And the title of the article, it is from The Guardian, for those at home. It's called, uh, it's a sentence from The Guardian, and it was written by Bobby Dempsey. And the title of it is, The Worst Part of Being Poor, Watching Your Dog Die When You Can't Afford to Help. The subtitle is, Oreo and Mitzi were sick, but since we couldn't pay thousands of dollars immediately, we couldn't get the care they needed. Article reads, A few years ago, my sister's Marilyn's peekapoo a playful and affectionate dog named Oreo went to the vet for minor bleeding in her mouth. Any issue involving blood is always of concern, but Oreo was only eight and otherwise in good health, so it wasn't alarming. Maybe she had maybe she had eaten something that had irritated her digestive system, we had assumed. The vet prescribed Rimadil, an anti-inflammatory medication often prescribed for arthritis. Within a few hours, her condition worsened. She couldn't eat and was obviously in distress. She became disoriented, unable to walk or stand. Then hemorrhaging started. They called around, and I'm paraphrasing, they called around for different veterinarians looking for help, and they discovered a cruel fact of life for pet owners of modest means. Which is, quote, if you can't hand over a bunch of cash immediately, you often have no way to get your pet the medical care they need, even in the worst emergencies. Just to be seen, just to be seen, is often $500. Just to get in the door, let alone to do the rest of the work that needs doing. Surgery for thousands of dollars. Medication that is hundreds of dollars. 
fees, late fees. The article goes on to state, like most animal lovers, I think you can't put price tags on the lives of our beloved four-legged friends. Unfortunately, that's exactly what a poor pet owner forces you to do. My state, Pennsylvania, ranks among the most expensive for emergency veterinary medicine. If your pet has ever eaten something they shouldn't, consider yourself lucky if it didn't cost you a fortune. The average cost of, quote, foreign body ingestion, a common pet emergency, is often more than $1,500, according to the article. The American Veterinary Medical Association suggests that financially challenged pet owners talk to their veterinarian about payment plans or deferred payments, look into low-cost clinics, and check for charities that might be able to help, all of which we did to no avail. When you are searching for an emergency care for someone, in the United States since Ronald Reagan, they are required to take you. It does not matter if you are here, quote-unquote, legally or not. They are required to see you. They, if you go to the emergency room, they must take you. They don't ask for a credit card up front. They must take you. So as you're running around trying to save your dog's life, you are having to reach out to charities and take online advice to be sure that you do not bankrupt yourself, that you can make rent, that you can eat, you can pay your car insurance. Have your cell phone. And the response to much of this is exactly what it says in the article, which is, as I said, the article goes on to state, I've heard plenty of comments along the lines of, quote, if you're poor, you shouldn't get a pet. One person in a local Facebook group in a discussion where someone was asking about affordable vet services in the area chimed in with his opinion that if you cannot dedicate at least $1,000 a year for vet care, you shouldn't get a pet. That's despicable. That's disgusting. For both us as a society, us as individual people, and also for the animals that we are responsible for, we are charged, that are in our care. Again, we started this. They are our collective responsibility. As the article goes on to state, pets are yet another thing that are used by people as an excuse to pour shame. Essentially telling indigent people that they aren't worthy of a companionship of a loving pet. This was a situation with her sister where she had a pet emergency. And it says clearly in the article, like most low-income and working-class people who live in Pennsylvania coal country, my sister and her husband live paycheck to paycheck. At that time, Marilyn had been recently forced to leave her job as a cashier due to breathing difficulties. She is now facing a double lung transplant, and her husband worked at a local furniture store. The article states, coming up with hundreds of dollars on the spot proved impossible. It says, all this meant Oreo suffered into a second day. At this point, she was lying on the kitchen floor wailing. It was agonizing for the whole family. My niece, Crystal, sobbed as she lay next to the floor to Oreo, trying in vain to comfort her. In despair, my sister begged the vet's offices and even offered to let them garner her husband's paychecks. Still no luck. As a Hail Mary, they rushed Oreo to one local vet's office, hoping that seeing the dog's distress would move the staff to waive their normal payment policies given the dire situation. As Oreo bled heavily all over the waiting room floor, 
The staff informed my sister that they couldn't do anything unless she could bring someone who could get approved for a credit line of at least $1,000. Oreo, clinging to life at this point, entered the third day of suffering. She would look at you in, de in desperation like she was pleading with you for help. The only emergency vet hospital within 45 minutes of this writer demands payment immediately when you walk in the door. The just to get in the door payment is 150, but they warn you that even just an initial round of tests can easily run you 700, several hundred dollars or more. They can't even give you an estimate for the total treatment cost until they do an evaluation and test. By this time, they face the ghastly realization that Oreo was probably too far gone to be saved. Even though the dog was only eight years old and just three days ago, she was in perfect she was obviously not in perfect health. Three days ago, she was walking around and breathing and being. They had to euthanize her. But no, in capitalism, not even death is free for your pet. Article goes on to say, how, however, even for euthanasia, all of the local vet offices require immediate payment at the time of service. Costs vary, but euthanasia typically can run to $200 or more. As it approached day four, we finally found a vet more than half an hour away who agreed to examine Oreo. They weren't sure if there was anything they'd be able to do for her at that point, but at least they were willing to give it a try. But right after we spoke to that compassionate vet, Oreo passed away in Crystal's arms. And the article has another example of the kind of pain and emotional agony and torture that we put pets through in this country for profit. I say pets over profit. That's what I say. I went to VCU to become a psychiatrist. I wanted to open up clinics in low income communities because they are underserved. Because I knew that that population was not only needed to be served, but it needed to be studied for the betterment of the treatment of those populations, poor, black, and brown, and native peoples. I did not consider it ethical to become a doctor and deny people care because they could not afford it. That is the main reason that I did not become a psychiatrist. I refuse, under any circumstances, to be in a position where I would be charged with someone else's health, to be held responsible for someone else's health, and to tell them no because they did not have numbers on a screen or green paper in their pocket. It is despicable. It is disgusting. It is disturbing. The kind of cruelty that we hand out to not only each other, but especially our pets. This is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. This cannot continue. There must be a system by which there is a federally run system of kennels, of dog breeders. They can be individuals or simply from the kennels themselves to breed them through the National Wildlife Service or through the National Park Service, you name it, whatever you need to come up with in order to in order for it to work for you. But 30 
billion dollars stands between us and Oreo's life and Mitzi's life. I cannot understand how it is ethical for someone to deny care to a being based on the inability to pay. That is morally reprehensible. I consider it a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. It is dishonoring. And in a better world and in a better society, that would get your medical license yanked. You're in dereliction of duty. Dogs. Pets are our responsibility, and it's time that we lived up to it. It is time, high time, that we go about nationalizing the pet care infrastructure within the United States. It should be paid for. We can have a discussion how it will be paid for. I'm not sure that the best idea is to have the cost to be absorbed by adopting a pet or by paying a yearly pet fee. I don't think that's how that should happen because then there's going to be a criminalizing of it and then there's going to be a situation where people are going to be either denied care or they're going to have their pets taken from them because they cannot get care. $30 billion in the richest country in the history of the world is what separates us from being able to take care of our pets. There should never, ever, ever, ever come a day where you watch a dog die. You watch anyone die because they cannot afford to take you. Veterinarians, kennels, the pet industry should be completely nationalized. Period. End of statement. No excuses. No bullshit. We are enabling animal cruelty in doing so.